0: So we did our full diligence and, and we believed they were about to you know sell at significantly higher prices to different companies and different buyers across the globe. And we did all our research and, and felt that they were on the cusp. So we we purchased shares. That cusp never came.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I want to thank you for joining that mission, especially my listeners in Chicago and in the wonderful country of Australia. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A.E. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Kyle Mowry. Kyle, are you ready to join the mission? I am in. I want to reduce my risk. (laughs) That's what we want to do. So let me introduce you to the audience. Kyle Mowry is founder and portfolio manager at Grizzly Rock Capital and has an 18 year career beginning at PAMCO, where he honed his analytical skills. He later delved into high-yield corporate securities at T.H. Lee Senior Credit Strategies and expanded his expertise at BMO Capital Markets. In 2012, he established Grizzly Rock, adopting a fundamental value-oriented research approach in small-cap companies. Kyle's method involves rigorous research, systematically identifying mispriced securities with high-risk reward potential. With unwavering discipline, he navigates market complexities focusing on high conviction investments amidst information overload. His adeptness in spotting substantial mispricing opportunities sets him apart in the crowded investment landscape. Well, Kyle, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world.
0: Yeah, Andrew, thank you for having me. We are a small-cap manager trying to emulate, you know, a fundamental strategy, investing strategy, free cash flow focused strategy in in largely North American equities and been around 12 years. And and now we're an SEC registered manager. So just keep on keeping on is the goal. Mm. And
1: maybe I, I have a lot of interest in the area that you're in because I've been doing a lot of comparisons of the US compared to, let's say, Asia and other markets. And one of the really surprising things about the U.S. market is how the net listings are negative. For the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, there's more companies delisting from the U.S. markets than are listing. What the heck is going on with the, he- the center of capitalism?
0: Well, simply private equity. Mm. Private equity has bought so many of the companies that formerly would have been U.S. listed small caps or micro caps and rolled up. I mean, the amount of money in private equity, the returns have been largely very good. I'm not in that business, but I got a lot of friends in that business, and it is and it is a wonderful investing strategy for those who um, who have access to it and who don't need the liquidity.
1: Mm, because liquidity is the idea of being able to get in and out and when something's in the stock market.
0: It's in your commitment, right? I mean, if you're, if you're in a public, public stock fund hedge fund mutual fund interval fund you know you can get your money out within you know a quarter at the longest but in a private equity fund you're signing a 10-year check so you know that works for many especially on the institutional side but it doesn't work for all and so i think i think there's still a lot of our companies end up being sold to private equity and when that happens i'm very happy because it means i'm yes. doing doing a good job right underwriting free cash flow and underwriting you know, sustained. Product and service development and value and and private equity sees that and takes it private. That's good for me, but yeah. overall, yeah, it does narrow the narrow the field.
1: And I'm just uh, looking at a chart. I'm not sharing the screen of it, but I'm looking at it. And what I'm seeing, I'm looking at the Fed funds rate. And what we know, of course, is that the Fed funds rate has you know been extremely low. Let's say you could say since. 1995, we were down at 4%. It popped up to 6% and then came back down in 2000, where it was back down at about 2%. So let's say over the last 20 years, we've been at, on an average, maybe 2%, 1.5%. To what extent is the low interest rate environment the really the main thing driving private equity? If If interest rates had been over the last 20 years, if they had been, let's say 5%, at the Fed funds rate, meaning that the private equity firms would get money at, you know, maybe six percent or whatever. Would that have changed this? Or is there more than just interest rates and access to super low-cost funds?
0: Well, a higher interest rate, I mean, sure would have lowered the IRR a little bit, but you know, one of the beauties of private equity, and you know, folks who sit in a public equity seat like me often, you know, wish we could mark our portfolios at cost or where we think they're. Worth. Now we don't get to. We get marked every day where private equity, you know, the price not changing very much is actually not a bug. That's a feature, right? That's Mm. part and parcel of it. But we in the public world have liquidity and in the private equity world, they don't. I would say that early on, equity was really focused on, you know, operational improvements and they could have a ton of financial leverage. But they found that they didn't have to do as much operational improvement. So they were able to do many, many more deals just on financial engineering. I would say now the best private equity comes in and it's the correct balance sheet, but it's really about growing, growing the EBITDA and free cash flow and really from an operational perspective, improving the business. And so in that way, private equity is really no different than you know any other sort of ownership that is focused on on growth. And accurate financial growth reporting and whatnot, so that's that's something that it's a great asset class.
1: It raises a question If the value of your portfolio is not quoted on a daily or weekly or monthly basis, does that mean that it's less risky? Does it mean even that it's less volatile when you don't measure it, you know? That's a question that I think about a lot. Like,
0: I mean, we can we we can have a multi-hour debate about that. Mm. I think you know, ultimately the companies are sold and the investors receive what the companies are sold for. So in the end, it it washes out. In the middle, the price is not gonna move that much. It's gonna be quoted at, you know, a certain price for a while. Most yep. times it costs for a, a substantial time period which can be good, can be bad, but you also have you have illiquidity. So you're bearing illiquidity risk, not so much price risk, where if you turn on the TV and you own a publicly traded stock, and all of a sudden it's down 10 20% for whatever reason, all that means is it's the marginal buyer and seller meeting. That's, that's just a, the price that they happen to quote today, and the price might be set by someone who's thinking about something completely different than than you or I. And, and that can be annoying, and it is many times, especially for someone – Who runs a long short fund? Because they're always taking pain on on the long or the short side, seemingly on a daily basis from market participants who aren't thinking about the world the way that you are. So, but but the price, those dislocations, that's opportunity.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And that's why public, you know, active managers, active being, you know, stock pickers in public equity can and do outperform when they go into those areas of significant discrepancy and doing something highly unique.
1: The other thing that's been interesting, I have a course I call Finance Made Ridiculously Simple and it's part of my valuation masterclass also. And I have a data set of 26,000 companies around the world, every country I can get. And then I, I collect that data. and th- And then what I do is I clean it and I have some standard cutoffs, like, you know, getting rid of companies that are, let's say, tiny or companies that have very low trading volume, because I want a representative sample of companies. When you do a standard measure like that across the universe, you end up having more Chinese companies than American yeah. companies now. Yeah. And Absolutely. that is fascinating. So it brings me to the, the next question, which is, how do you define what is small cap? You know, what does that mean to you?
0: Yes. Well, as you will find out with my upcoming painful story, I think for a couple of different reasons, we've decided to focus on on North America and Western Europe. So we look at North, North America and and Western Europe, you know, we're, we're generalists though, we're Mm. typically looking 500 million in market cap to about 3 billion ish, small caps. I mean, these are real businesses. They have real cash flows, real products, but they're not beholden to one, one or two people, the way that some nano and micro caps are. And the last 10 years probably proves this statement ill-timed, if not incorrect, but it the larger cap securities are more efficiently priced. And so when I was thinking about the best way to add value to client portfolios, what I could do is go into small caps, find unique uncorrelated assets and invest in them with you know, rigorous diligence and, and research, so.
1: And there's, there still are a lot of gems in that space. One of the companies that I talk about with my course is the company called Fastenal. And uh, with oh, the, yeah. the code fast, which I found, you know, I just find it very interesting. The whole business model is just unique. I mean, that's um, one of
0: the best re- returning companies in the last 30 years, right? I mean.
1: Yeah, well, there's something interesting also about that. I went through my data set of all of my 26,000 companies to try to find the most simple company. And I was looking for ones that didn't have equity income. I was looking for ones that didn't have goodwill. Didn't have you know a lot of intangibles and all of that, and that company comes out as the cleanest P and L balance sheet. Very simple, and that helped me for my teaching that this is my starting company because I don't have yeah. to deal with the complication of you know. Oh, wait a yeah. minute, what's this goodwill item?
0: Yeah, no, that's it's a wonderful company, and I could spend all day in a fastener yeah. aisle at Home Depot, but that just tells you I'm a
1: I'm a dad. That's what that tells you. And the last thing is that I just was curious about is like, what is your holding period? Once you find a company, how long do you stay in it? You know, what what is that? You know, tell us a little bit about that methodology. Yeah,
0: so our our focus is sort of in between a shorter term hedge fund. It's gonna be a little bit more quarterly focused and definitely not looking out, you know, a decade plus, like some of the, you know, real big name growth investors. We're looking out one to three years, two to four years, and we're looking for inflections in the business specifically around operating profit and free cash flow. And so a lot of times Wall Street is pretty good at looking out 12 months, but maybe they don't look out three years, right? And they don't understand the operating leverage inherent in the businesses. They don't understand the way that you know the debt leverage is going to come down or you know there's going to be a, a series of catalytic events. A catalytic path that is, extends over those periods of time in such a way that you can do the research, you know, which takes substantial effort and time, do it up front and then position yourself for a multi-year time hold. A lot of our investors are taxable as well. So hmm. always in the U.S., prefer to hold it for over a year if possible.
1: You used the interesting word inflection or inflection point, maybe it's a significant change or a point where something's happening, which is different from a catalytic event, as you said, like the catalyst that reveals that maybe to the market. So what you're thinking about when you're looking at something is you're saying, all right, the free cash flows of this company seem pretty low, but hey, they're doing an inventory reduction program. And I think that that could have a real positive impact on free cash flows in the next couple of years. I want to start building a position in this now and then see their progress in that and if they have that progress eventually the market's going to see that and then I'm going to get the performance. Exactly.
0: I mean you mentioned your your database and you know that you can run a lot of different quantitative screens. As a qualitative investor if I can position myself, you know, I only have 15 to 20 companies at any one time, right? Mm. If I can position myself to where I would not hit a screen such as yours now but then in 12 to 18 months it will that's something where in a passive world that likes to invest in a passive way with stocks and indices and a world that's focused more and more on quant investing then that's something that you know you can game the system a little bit so to speak
1: And how hard is it? You know, I mean, when you think about it, everybody's watching this data and, you know, on the one hand, sometimes you look at things in life and you think, wow, that's really hard. And there's a lot of really smart people, but, you know, sometimes really smart people can do really dumb things and they can all follow each other doing those dumb things. I'm just curious, like, how hard is it for what you're doing? I think the key is
0: being intellectually honest, being honest about what, what are the businesses that you understand because you don't need to be an expert on 100 businesses, right? We have a team of three. Mm. So there's three of us, all good pedigrees, been doing small caps more or less our whole career. We, you know, we have a, on our long portfolio, we have 15 to 20 ideas and they don't all turn over every year. So we're, we don't have to find an idea a month. We're not going to be able to find an idea a month, each person, right? Mm. Like it's just not. For what we're looking for, I mean, we're looking for businesses that are massively mispriced and misunderstood over two to four years. That's not something that you can just open a you know, proverbial newspaper, throw a dart and, and hit. You have to understand why, and you have to understand it in, a, in an asymmetric you know, risk-return type framework, right? I mean, we're looking for five to one, four to one sort of upside downside, and you want to be really rigorous on the downside. Mm. That's the way to to compound over time
1: you remind me about my episode 667 with Srikanth with Wanatan who has a company called SVN Capital in Chicago and Yeah, I
0: know him. He's great.
1: Yeah, excellent. And he, you know, he highlighted the fact that, you know, he highlighted a particular academic paper that was great that highlighted that Really, it's only a small number of companies that actually lead the, the true value creation around the world. Now, he's not a small cap necessarily focused, but his point yeah. was, you don't need a massive universe. And you've yeah. reiterated that, that you're not, don't need to focus on thousands and thousands. You need to narrow it down to, you know, a small number. So one, one other question I'm curious about, what is the responsiveness or the amount of information that you get out of a small cap or that type of company in the U.S. these days?
0: Well reg FD has really uh leveled it out nicely. I don't want to date myself too much, but I was not in the business pre-reg FD. Mm. I was in the business pre-financial crisis. so the uh, unfettered bull market of the last 12 years minus a couple months in covid is is not my only background yep, but I kind of worried quite frankly about market structure. It affected so many analysts and PMs have come into professional investing after the
1: GFC, but hmm. that's sort of a different podcast topic. So FD, in- regulation FD comes in and basically means that the companies have to uniformly disseminate information through their communications to the markets, their websites, that type of thing. There's no preferential yeah. treatment, but that also means that they're getting information up on their websites and they're you can easily access what they're saying.
0: Another good way to understand companies is to understand the culture, right? I mean, it's really hard to understand the culture of reading a, an annual report, right? 10K in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk to management. You can understand it. You can study the boards, bios, and whatnot. But really understanding the culture. I mean, talking to former employees that have been gone you know, a while just for uh, compliance purposes is a great way to understand the business, a great way to understand the people and how they're likely to act in periods of stress. And that's something that, you know, you can't, you don't want to rely on, but it's something it helps round out the picture of the company as you understand it deeper than, than just, you know, you can actually numerically model. So that's, that's something that, that we try and spend a lot of time on as well.
1: Mm. Well, it's, it's great to discuss all this stuff because I know some of my listeners are fund managers and they're managing money. And some of them are really focused in on small and mid cap companies and thinking about how to build something on their own. So I think it's a valuable discussion, but now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, (laughs) tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Sure. So our
0: firm, you know, we're here to provide not only high absolute return and good risk adjusted return, but do something unique and different, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons we ended up in small cap but I think, in a lot of ways, I strayed a little too far outside my circle of competence. It also got it also kind of gets into building the business, and how much leeway do you, do you as a portfolio manager want to give your team? So while this investment was led by others on my team, the ownership of the loss is 100 percent on me. Mm-hmm. and ultimately, you know, at every portfolio. Whether it's a personal account or a, a giant fund, there's someone that's got to put their name on it. And that one, for this one, is me. So for us, you know, I hired a, an additional analyst as we were growing the business in 2016. And this person had a background in uh, small cap Asian, uh, developed market, Asian equities, and had been following a business at the time, which was called TFS, which is now called Quintus this is a business that produces sandalwood trees. Sandalwood trees are a hardwood, which takes a long time—takes about fifteen years for the quote crop to mature. But you know, it's a it's a very valuable product for cosmetics, for religious use, even pharmaceutical oils and in tinctures and things. So, you know, we researched the business in late twenty sixteen, and ultimately ended up purchasing shares believing that the company was on the cusp or the inflection of significant free cash flow. Now the company was levered financially and we were well aware of that. We were also aware that they were on the precipice of of going free cash flow positive. That's sort of you know what management by the way I don't know if I'm supposed to go back and, and brush up. I didn't. It was too painful. It was six years ago. <laughs> That's
1: okay. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Okay.
0: So so this is all my recollection of it. But, but you know, we invested on the basis of the imminent free cash flow. We're going to harvest this wonderful group of trees. We put boots on the ground on my team. They were in Australia. They mm. saw the trees. They saw the like that was all very real. And then also management. There was a founding family that owned between twenty and twenty-five percent of the business. Mm-hmm. So you, a lot of times you look for alignment, right? You look for a signal founder-owned and, and run companies. You know, if there's skin in the game, that's certainly meaningful. And so that was another point. So we did our full diligence, and, and we believed they were about to, you know, sell at significantly higher prices to different companies and different buyers across the globe. And we did all our research and and felt that they were on the cusp. So we, we purchased shares. That cusp never came. Some of the sales fell through or fell through at different prices. And the whole thing eventually kind of, I don't want to use the F word, fraud, but the whole thing kind of fell in on itself. And Australia does not have Reg FD. And there's definitely, it's harder to check culture, cultural sources, and really deep in to companies where you're not on the ground. So I sit in Chicago, you know, so we don't do Asia anymore, not because there's not a wonderful suite of companies and a lot of economic vitality in Asia. It's just not in our circle of competence. We thought it was, we believed it was at the time. Was it? It was on the edge, right? But ultimately management resigned. So they didn't have to report when they sold their shares and then the whole thing imploded. And yeah. we did sell before it hit zero, but uh, but it was a very, very nasty loss, so.
1: And how would you summarize the lessons that you learned from that?
0: Well, I think that investing in your circle of competence, it could be that we understood the business, we understood the products, but did we mm-hmm. understand the culture of Australia? We in Chicago, Maybe, you know, I think we also put a lot of stock in management owning company. I think one can delude themselves. Any of us can delude ourselves, right? We're only human and, and management saw what they want. You know, they saw some vitality that they wanted to see that they were working hard towards and it, it just didn't work. So whether they were being, you know, I'm not saying they were being blatantly dishonest. They were certainly looking at a rosy picture of the future. And look, that's what management does at every company mm. they're, they're you know, you cannot wake up every day think your business is not going to do well and, and go and turn the key and, and succeed. You just, capitalism doesn't work like that. There's a, there's an inherent optimism that we get up and try and make our companies better and stronger and come home and see our families and say, hey, you know, we've made progress today. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the economic way of capitalism, right? So, you know, I, I think that was certainly a learning. And then look, on inflection investing, maybe see the inflection, right? Okay, you'll pay a higher price, but you'll have a greater certainty, right? And look, we've gotten them wrong since we've gotten them wrong prior, we've gotten them right since we've gotten them right, you know, prior. I think it's all about risk return. And if a zero is on the on the board as part of risk, you have to think, well in a Kelly growth criterion, you know bet size you just got to make sure the bet size is correct
1: right I was saying that my takeaway is I just know how how difficult it is to run money particularly if you you know you're starting up or you're small mid-cap and you're in the space you really desperately need to be making great investments and not any you know big mistakes because that's the thing about fund management is you're being tracked, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And that's, I guess, what I take away is the the feeling of how how difficult it can be. You know, if you're a Peter Lynch, like in the old days where you got a fund with, you know, 500 stocks, it doesn't matter if that stock, Quintus in this say, situation, let's say, went to zero. That's eh, So what? I got another one that's going you know, up by, you know, a hundred percent, but in your situation and in mine, and in many people who are running, you know, smaller funds or they're starting out, it's such a critical thing. And that's my big takeaway is kind of the emotional struggle of something like that.
0: Well, I think you just have to be true to what your parameters are. If, if volatility is risk, as opposed to being a permanent loss of capital, then you just need to be honest with your investors and tell them, you know, I got I got friends that run funds with crazy high volatility. I've got friends that run with less volatility than me. It just it fits. It's got to fit one's personality and it's got to be in alignment with the investors, right? I think a couple of years after this story happened, COVID happened, and mm-hmm. for us, as being a free cash flow focused investor, there are certain businesses that are economically sensitive, I mean, we had, we had travel businesses that we owned going into 2020. Well, those were dramatically affected by, by COVID, not all our portfolio was, but you know, how do you react to that? Do you know what you own? Do you have a plan? Do the companies have balance sheets to get to the other side, right? This Quintus would have made it without the, extreme financial leverage, which was part of what we thought we saw in a multi-bagger, right? So, you know, I think decide, you know, some people don't do any debt, mm. right? Some people will do levered situations and some people do both. We do both. We have unlevered companies and levered companies. We can understand credit agreements. I've, I've yep. you know, structured many credit agreements myself personally. So that's so, within our circle of competence, but yeah.
1: So, so let's, since the objective here is to help people reduce risks. Let's now go back in time, think about that moment. And based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what would be one action that you'd recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate?
0: I think intellectual honesty, right? The minute things don't align with what you had underwritten, you want to reassess, Hmm. right? The world is a messy place. The economic landscape changes the competitive landscape of competitors changes. It's okay that your original thesis was invalidated, but if you can be intellectually honest, when it does, you can, if you're wrong, if the thesis is wrong, it's not like you somehow screwed up, things change. And when things change, you should probably think about you know using the liquidity of the public markets and then exiting, right? Mm. I mean, that's one of what we have that liquidity goes both ways. It can be a, a benefit and it can be something that's a challenge. So if you're intellectually honest, look, things change. And that's how we avoided a zero in Quintus, right? We didn't, we took a big drawdown for sure, but we did not own it into bankruptcy and many did. Yeah. And I think we were just intellectually honest, even though we had, we even been public in terms of, well, not public in our, in our letter to mm. investors we had talked about, okay, here's what we see. Here's what, you know, and then the, the whole thing imploded within months, which is like really fast for right. us. So.
1: Mm. So my next question is kind of an open-ended question, but I wonder if you have any resource either of your own or any others that you'd recommend for our listeners.
0: Well, I grew up on margin of safety mm-hmm. a book by Seth Klarman. you know, that's sort of like uh the old ways now, I know there are many people who think many things about Klarman, but I've always joked with my investors that if Boston calls, I'm closing the fund and, and heading out there. I think I think he does a great job because what Klarman does well is understand risk versus return. Mm. Right. There's a lot of people taking a lot of risk the last 10 years. And if you took it in 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 factor style factors such as momentum. Quality and then, you know, sectors like tech, you look like a genius. That may or may not be true overall or through a full market cycle, but it's certainly been true recently. So I think, you know, for me, that's just, I'm a dyed in the wool fundamental investor. And for me, all those those seminal tomes, you know, the late Charlie Munger, gosh, it's so weird to call him late, but, Mm. you know, Charlie Munger's Poor Charlie's Almanac, all the things that, Buffett and Munger, yes, I know it's popular, but it's also valid. And some of, you know, Munger is just so blunt and so simple that even if you're not a professional, you can find it refreshing and easy to implement, or at least easy to understand, maybe harder to implement, but. (laughs)
1: Last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months?
0: My number one, I'll answer it professionally. Yeah. I think there's a wild amount of uncertainty in the market that is not being captured in stock prices. I think 2024, you have elections in many countries. I'm most focused on the United States because that's where I live. You have inflation, which appears to be beaten, but deglobalization is sort of very inflationary, right? Onshoring of supply chains is inherently inflationary, as is energy transition, as is potential peak oil in the next couple of years. When the U.S. shale oil is going down, the curve is going down quickly in the next few years, and it's not something that's well understood out there.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: there's a lot of risk out there. I look out and like, as we sit here and tape this in uh, December of 2023, the Russell 2000, which is kind of my focus in terms of, you know, I'm not benchmark per se, but um, as a long short investor, but it's just kind of our sandbox companies we plan. It's up 25% in like two months. Like that is wild. And it implies a certain outcome. I'm not, I'm personally not sure that that outcome of low, low inflation and avoiding a recession is set in stone. So to me, it's about uncertainty. So you know, professionally, the goal is to build a portfolio that can manage that uncertainty, that can, that can perform or not draw down very far in you know certain adverse states of the world across a broad spectrum of economic outcomes. That that's the answer.
1: Great. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Kyle, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTs Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: No, I just think, you know, investing is, is a wonderful passion for many of us. I'm sure yourself and certainly myself included. And, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful lifelong journey and you get some wrong, get some right. And the key is to uh, just keep it, keep
1: it on sides and keep compounding. Fantastic. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate the today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on the upside.